Hello, we're going to turn in our Bibles to James chapter 2, and uh, today we're going to be looking at, uh, well, change. Um, I'm I'm just reading, so (laughs) I'm reading the intro that I wrote out. People resist the call to change. I can't believe I'm staring at that. Uh, And what happened, the reason why... That is uh, a part of our beginning here is because James, in his letter, has challenged his listeners to change. And when they were challenged, or at least he assumes that they will, um, you know, uh, respond not in kind uh, the way that he would expect them to. And when any of us are challenged with, and here we're talking about not just you know, uh, I like chicken or fish, something like that. This is this is about wrong behavior. Uh, James is after the early church's wrong behavior, and when a person is challenged with their wrong behavior, what is their immediate response? Like, what's your response? What's my response? If <clears throat> we're challenged, it's often we can be a, a frontal attack at our challenger, and uh, you know, who are you to tell me? You know, what about you? That kind of thing. Or we can make excuses and say, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what my background is. You don't know who I really am. Uh, But seldom do we listen to reproof with humility. And when it comes from, you know, this is reproof from the Scripture. All right, so it's not from a person. Sometimes people are definitely wrong and you shouldn't listen to them. Um, But when it comes from the Scripture, You know, as James said, you're guilty of one part of the law, you're guilty of it all. You might be strong in some areas and weak in others. When the Scripture reproves you on your weakness, what is your response? And that's what we're going to look at today. Um, If you're perfect already, then great, good for you. But I know that you're not, and neither am I. And uh, if you're not and you need change, you need to change. Like all of us at some level have to, and that's what today's lesson is, uh, and that's for you. So let's open up in prayer. Let's look at, uh, we'll be looking at a section of James in chapter 2. And as James instructs in his own letter, we should not come to the Word of God with any uh, ill will or bad thoughts or sinful thoughts, but that we should have an open mind ready to be written upon by God the Holy Spirit through His Word with humility and reverence. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you and you alone are Lord. You and you alone have authority, and you you and you alone are holy. We thank you, Father, for you, for your word, for guiding and directing us in the truth and in life, to give us the courage by Your Spirit to live that life. And when we have to make changes, Father, when You challenge us to change, that we will. Um, We may kick and scream along the way, but You will have Your way, and we know that. So, Father, we thank You for Your grace, Your patience, 
Because none of us really like to be reproved and none of us really like to change. All of us like to assume that we're perfect the way we are. But uh, we know, Father, that we're not. And we ask that through your Spirit and your Word that we would be encouraged to continue to grow. And growth is change. Uh, Growth is maturity. And maturity is change from infancy to maturity. We thank you, Father, for your guidance and direction in truth. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. So James is writing to Christians who need change in the worst way. James's theme uh, to live out your Christianity despite the pressure not to, and and that's as he starts the letter, "Consider consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, For these trials, he says, produces in you an enduring faith. And he's going to say that again in our section today. That when we work the works of God by faith, this is as believers now. We're not talking about faith unto salvation. We're talking about faith of the Christian to do the things that God has called him to do. That when we do that, our faith will mature. Our faith will be, as James, in in your New American Standard, it says perfected. And so that's what we're after. That's what James is after here, and that's what we're after here. Maturity, growth. You know, it doesn't always happen the way that we think it's going to. Uh, And again, that's why we have to be flexible to God's, not flexible to the world, but to learn God's will and to have God's word change us. James's theme, again, is to live out your Christianity despite the pressure not to. And that is not accepted by most who he writes to, or so it seems. It would seem that those that James writes to are resisting this. And as we'll finish James this week, or two more classes, we'll finish the book. Uh, and again, we're just we're looking at the book as a whole. We're not going verse by verse. So if you're wondering, you know, why aren't we looking at a lot of Greek and so on, it's because we're looking at it from a, a more faraway perspective to get a, a picture of the entire theme of the book. Yeah, you could know all the verses in all the Greek in a book. If you don't know what the book is about, you've missed it. So, And that's what I'm trying to avoid. Uh, <clears throat> James is, therefore, so he's going to get resistance and he anticipates this. So you, you know this, right? You're writing a letter to somebody or an email and you're, as you're writing, and it's something a little bit like maybe you're challenging them on something, and you're like, oh, I know how they're going to respond. And that's, how, that's what James has here. As he's writing this letter, he has an idea that he's going to get some blowback. And so James's theme, faith without works, is useless. Right? Really, the main theme is uh, to, despite the pressure, be who you are in Christ to live out your faith. That's what... James is about living out your faith in a real and experiential day-by-day manner, just the way that you believe and and you're called to. So James is going to say faith without works is useless. And the rebuttal of these Christians that he assumes, and it wouldn't be a new one, and we'll see that, you can't see my faith by my works. So they're going to say to James, look, you're challenging me, you're saying, I don't have any works, I have lust, I have, uh, and we'll see, chapter 3 is all about, they, 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 don't, they sin with their tongues, 
They, they must be maligning each other and criticizing each other and uh, gossiping about one another. Uh, they're, they're not speaking properly in terms of grace and encouragement. They're uh, being lustful. They're not being faithful. They're being lustful for money. Uh, they are treating others terribly for the sake of getting ahead. They're playing favorites and so on. There's some more stuff in there. And they're actually, they're also being immoral. And they're basically saying to James, look, I know you're looking at my immorality, and I know that you're looking at what I say, but those things don't necessarily reflect what I believe. And James is saying, "Uh uh-uh, it totally reflects what you believe. You say you believe all of this Christianity, but you don't live it. And so you're, there's, there's a disconnect. That's what he's getting at. There's a disconnect be, be, between what you say you are and what you do. And by the way, who in the, in the Gospels did that all the time? The Pharisees. The Pharisees said one thing and did another. That's why Christ said, do all that they tell you to do, just don't do what they do. He said that. And so that's, their rebuttal is going to be, look, can you see faith? Can you? Right? Can you see faith? Faith is a, it's, a, it's invisible. Right? So how can you possibly see my faith? And that's going to be their rebuttal. Uh, this is the rebuttal that James expects. And so he writes. He actually makes up an objector and writes their rebuttal out. And then he shoots it down with the truth. So let's start with the situation. We have Christians that have no works. Look at uh, James 2.14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Now, is he talking about salvation to eternal life? Absolutely not. He's talking about the deliverance of his life, as we've already seen, which he already mapped out in chapter 1. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Now, does death again refer to something about salvation? No. James has already revealed to us in chapter 1 that he is speaking of a death that is not life. He is speaking of a uh, sterile life, an unfruitful life, and a believer who is indwelt by God. And that's what he's getting at. You're you're the temple of God. He doesn't say that in this letter, but he knows this. You're the temple of God. You're indwelt by God. You say that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. You believe that. And yet you, you want. Someone comes up to you who's hungry and you're like, go in peace. I'll pray for you. And you have food. And so he's showing us here that, look, you can have a head full of doctrine and have no output from it. And if that is the case, your life is a life that looks like death. So, as we have seen, James is writing to the very early church about living the Christian life rather than believing it and not living it. So his theme is that despite the pressure which there always will be for the believer. Look, 
Satan sees us as his enemies. Well, he sees the Lord as his enemy, and because we're in the Lord, he sees us as his enemy. And don't you think that if you start really gaining momentum in the spiritual life, he's going to come for you. And don't forget that Satan is very deceptive. It won't, from him, it won't be a frontal attack. From him, it's going to be deceit, something that he knows you'll believe that may have some truth in it, but also has lies. And when you believe things that have lies in them, they, they slow down and really saturate your spiritual life. And so, you know, there's going to be pressure. So despite the pressure, we must be who we are in Christ and live out our faith, exactly what that faith says in all areas of life. The purpose of James's letter is to strengthen believers to do just that, and it does. I mean, if, you're humble, if you humbly read this letter, it strengthens you. It challenges you as well, yeah. But challenge taken on by faith is going to produce strength. In this light, this sticky passage that we're going to look at today, we just started it uh, in verse 14. 214 through 26, that's the sticky passage. In light of the theme of the book, this passage becomes actually quite easy to unravel. And James understands that his words are not going to go unchallenged, even among Christians. And even among Christians, the impulse to make excuses for our behavior is strong. You know, you know I'm, I, I know that I'm wrong. And say, I'm not talking about even anybody challenging you or me, but to know that whatever you're doing, your fear, your worry, your anger, your anxiety, your immorality, dot, 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 fill it in, is wrong. But I make excuses for myself. I'm born like this. You know, I have a weakness. And on and on, whatever the excuses are, rather than just confess and repent and get at it. And that's what James is getting at. In the book of Proverbs, there are a number of passages or Proverbs about being reproved. And here's one of my favorites in Proverbs 12.1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. You know, and that means that when God, I, I want God to correct me. That's the one who loves discipline. I want correction. I know I need correction. And so whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. So, and I thought of the ostrich with his head in the sand. Although in that picture, his head's coming out in another place. But it's hard to find non-copyrighted pictures now that I've learned copyright laws. But anyway... Uh, And I don't want to pay. There's a ton of websites out there that want to charge you for pictures. And they have lovely pictures. I ain't going to pay for a picture. So anyway, James anticipates who will fit this category. Somebody he's writing to, maybe many, are going to fit this category. They're going to hate his reproof. And what is the result? Stupidity. And according to James, that is a part of death. This living death that people live, that we're to be wise with the knowledge of God. So, what James does is a common technique for debaters. He makes up an objector. It's imaginary. The problem with this passage has been the confusion of the exact extent of the words of the objector. In other words, where do the quote marks go? So, let's look at it. Look at James 2.18. 
but someone may well say, so there's a someone, right? Who's the someone? An objector. Someone may well say, this is James imagining someone is going to resist what he's written so far. And what he's written so far is faith that outworks is dead, okay? So someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Your New American Standard puts the quote marks at the end of verse 18. In other words, the New American Standard assumes that the objector is speaking only in verse 18. We say, well, where did James put the quote marks? That's the problem. He didn't. In the original manuscripts, there are no quote marks. In the original manuscripts, there is no punctuation at all. And so we don't know. There are no quote marks. The King James, the new King James, puts the quote marks actually halfway through 18, and that they have it that the objector says, you have faith and I have works, and that's it. So where is it? What is James, where, where is it? Where do these quotes go? Um, but so to understand, there's some technical parts to this, which is why I was going to do this on Sunday and I didn't because technicality on Sunday just doesn't seem all that, I don't know. But anyway, I saved it till today. <coughs> What James is using is an argumentative discourse to prove a point. What is James's point? And we have to unravel this. It's going to take some concentration. Uh, you know, what is James's point? That faith without works is dead. That you, you show your faith by your works. So what is the objector going to say? The objector is, not, is going to say the opposite. James is making up this objector, and of course he's going to say the opposite. So what we're going to see is that it is much more likely that the objector includes verse 19. So the objector would be saying this, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. And one of the main reasons that we would put the quotes all the way through 19, is James starts to respond in verse 20 with that but. You see the objective, what James writes in verse 18, but someone may say, and then in verse 20 he says, but are you willing to recognize? And there in verse 20 is his rebuttal with the but. And so the part in question becomes verse 19. And it is a part that is used in deceptive ways by people to teach that there are different kinds of faith. And that you might have faith in Christ, but you might not have the right kind of faith. And therefore, you might be like one of these demons who know that God exists, but you're not really saved. Does that make sense? And that's, that's the argument. And the people who do this are bringing their preconceived notion that there are different kinds of faith, that there's a strong faith and a middle faith and a weak faith or whatever, and that they're injecting that into the passage. You see, they see a passage that may back up what they want to believe, and they bring it here. And that's something that we always have to avoid. We must not put into the Scripture, but only take out. And that demands humility. 
So we must remind ourselves that James is writing to believers first and foremost, and that is clear. This is not an issue of salvation. It's an issue of living out our faith. Now, if you would hold your place here and go to Romans 9, and I'll put this up on the board. I've gone. I've grown really partial to this. I forget the author, uh, the artist's name. He's some Italian guy. He starts with a V, but uh, I like this picture of James <laughs> for some reason. But uh, so I've got it on the board so we can match it. Here's what the objector uh, says, and then what I want to focus on here, and that's why I put the two arrows there, is you know where does James start speaking? Does he start speaking at it's actually really important to understand the passage. Is he start speaking at the you believe, or does he start speaking at, at but are you willing? Look at Romans 9.19, because Paul will use in two places, Paul is going to use the same kind of technique. Look at 9.19, Romans 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? See, there's nobody who says this to Paul. He makes them up. Paul assumes a rebuttal or a a resistance to what he has taught so far in Romans 9. And he he makes up an objector. You will say to me then, after I've said this to you, I know what you're going to say to me. Why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Now, Paul here was writing about God's sovereignty. So people are going to say, look, God made me this way. I, I can't be any other way. Then Paul responds, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? That God is sovereign. But this passage is not, the, what I want from this passage is the verse 20, on the contrary. You see, that looks much like putting the quotes in the second part. But are you willing? Uh, same thing, now go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15.35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it die. But someone will say, this someone is someone made up by Paul. It's a He has imagined some objection. Uh, This is the objection to resurrection. In other words, how does this possibly happen? Someone will say that. But what is, so where does Paul start to respond? Paul responds to the objector at you fool. So if we use these two passages, because we have also James writing, you foolish fellow, it seems pretty clear that the objector is speaking all the way through verse 19, and then James starts to respond in verse 20. So, going back to James 2, the objector starts with an identification. All right, so in James 2.18, the objector says, you have faith, I have works. All right, so you're the one who has faith, I'm the one who has works. And then he makes a demand. He says, show me your faith. Now, I'm summarizing here on purpose. Show me your faith, and I'll show you mine. 
you have faith, show it to me. I have works, I'll show it to you. And the point of this is, not who has faith and who doesn't, because that's not the point of James's whole paragraph. The point of James's paragraph is that faith is manifested by works. The objector is going to say, no, it's not. My faith is pure. It doesn't matter what I do. See, in here, my faith is pure. Sure, you, it may look like I'm immoral. It may look like I have a, a, a rotten tongue that is set on fire by hell, James 3. It may look like I uh, lust after wealth and that I, I, uh, <clears throat> I attack others to gain wealth. It may look like that. But I guarantee you, my faith, the faith, my faith in Christianity is pretty awesome. And James is going to say, no, it's not. You're fooling yourself. You fool. We've got one more technical aspect. I don't know if, uh, and I know there's a lot here and you're going to juggle some things. You'll work it out. Manuscript evidence tells us that this passage could be, show me your faith without the works, and that is the Greek word chorus. Or, it may be, show me your faith from your works, which is the Greek preposition ek. And which one is it? It actually could be either one. Many manuscripts have both. And so all we have, we don't have the original. All we have are copies. And the many copies have both in them. So, which one is it? Well, it kind of makes a difference, and I like the ek better, because uh, ek is used in the next line by Paul, when he says, I'll show you my faith from my works, or I'll show you my faith by my works. But this is definitely not a scribal error, because the words are, are, that, are, are too different. Right? If, you were to write, if you were a scribe, and you were to write down chorus, and you, my mistake, wrote down ek, you are like the worst scribe ever. So this was intentional. Somebody changed it along the way, and it got copied. So just to point that out, it kind of has a bearing on it, but we can, we can get to the solution without it. What helps us with the solution here is the theme. The theme of James 2, 14 through 26 is that faith is shown by works. Faith is shown by works. The objector is going to say, no, it's not. James is going to say, change. And they're going to say, I don't have to. My faith is fine. James is going to say, no, it's not. And they're going to say, yeah, it is. <laughs> and you know, I don't know how it turns out. But it, it's the same with all of us. You know, we get challenged by something. Are we going to change? Are we not? You know, God is going to help you along the way, too. Um, but nobody likes it. You know, nobody likes it. I... I, guess I should say no. I shouldn't say nobody. I, I think as we mature, we start to recognize that things in us need to change, and that we're actually looking forward to it. But who am I? Uh, so this is another way of stating the theme of the book: faith is shown by works. Right? Live out your faith. Since this is true, the objector would say, "No, it's not." So. Look what James says in verse 20. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? 
Not that you're not saved, but that your faith is producing nothing. It's like having a seed and putting it in a drawer. You don't you haven't done anything with it. Was not and so now, and this is beautiful, that James is going to use an example. And he's going to use two people, Abraham and Rahab. And both of them were James's theme again is that we're under trial as those who are living out our faith. We're under trial. There's pressure. Uh, there's, oh, and it's amazing where that pressure can come from. The pressure for you to alter, <laughs> to alter the means by which you should live before your Lord. That pressure can come from many places. Uh, the pressure to not do it can come from many places. It can come from places you least expect. We must not judge what we should do by the source of anything on earth. Right? If someone's telling us do this or do that, or some situation is pushing us in a certain direction, uh, or uh, an influence, or whatever, if it comes from the earth, it is not necessarily from God. It might be, but it might not be. And we have to be able to discern, and not only discern, but actually have the courage to do what we're called to do. And when you get pressured not to, you have to say, where's that coming from? Is it from God? Because if it's from God, change. If it's not then you know we have to have the courage and the faith to figure this out. The example is Abraham. Abraham, this is the height of his pressure. Abraham was told to sacrifice his son Isaac. That was the height of his trial. So he said, let's start again in verse 20. Are you willing, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of works, faith was perfected. Now, Abraham never became perfect. This word means mature. His faith was matured. Why? Because of his works. And this is clear. This is in Genesis 22. You just have to go back and read it and see that Abraham was called by God to sacrifice Isaac, and Abraham, by faith, went ahead and did it. And as his knife was coming down to cut his son's throat, a voice came from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Henani is a Hebrew word. It says, here I am, Lord. And he said, stop what you're doing. Behold, there is a ram in a thicket. Offer the sacrifice. And, you know, when Abraham walked down that hill after he had trusted the Lord and went through it, what was his faith like coming back down? Going up, he had faith. Coming down, he had more faith. That's what God is after for us. Don't let anybody take it from you. Don't let any situation, don't let your sin nature, don't let, you know, as James is saying here, don't let things that are pulling on your flesh take away the opportunities to increase your faith and maturity because the more mature it is, the happier, more confident, more whole you're going to be. It's beautiful as God has done this. It's beautiful, but he hasn't made it immediately easy, has he? 
So, and then he says the scripture was fulfilled that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. I'm not really going to go into Rahab here, but I hope you know the story. Rahab, too, was her faith was tested. She believed that the God of Israel was the one true God. Now, if she said she believed that and then she didn't hide the spies, but she ratted them out, was her faith really justified? You know, what I guess what we could say is, is what Abraham said and what Rahab said justified if they actually didn't go through with what faith meant to them? And so if Abraham is touted as a, great, as a man of great faith, but he says no to God's commands to offer Isaac, that statement is not justified. If Rahab says she believes that the God of Israel will destroy Jericho, and she did, but then she ratted out the spies to protect her own skin, well, her faith isn't really justified, is it? At least what she said is not justified. James is telling us that if we claim to believe the power and magnificence of God's life, we don't justify our claims if we don't live it. Again, James is telling us that if we claim to believe the power and magnificence of God's life in us, we are not justified in our claims if we don't live it. This is not the justification that Paul speaks of in Romans, Romans 3-5. through 5. Paul is speaking in Romans of the justification of a believer who has fulfilled the law through faith in Jesus Christ. But James is talking about a believer, not an unbeliever, a believer who either continues to live in that which they have been delivered from, which is sin and death, or walks and lives in the light that is the life of Christ in them. Either they continue to live in sin, or they, can, or they are delivered and you know, mature. None of us are sinless, and we always have to say that. So with the whole context in mind, let's return to the objector's argument. The objector is saying, uh, the objector is stating that there's no connection between faith and works. And this is very important for us because our lives have to be lived out. For the sake of argument, they, so the objector, quote unquote, for the sake of argument, let's say that you have faith and I have works. Let's start there. You can no more start with what you believe and show me your works than I can start with works and demonstrate what I believe. And I know this gets confusing. It's like, aren't they saying the same thing? And in essence, they actually are. Now, both are the same. You start with faith, and then you say, I'm going to show it to you. I start with works, and then I say, I'm going to show you my faith. Okay, maybe you can, maybe you can't. You have to remember, this is a made-up objector. The objector is confident that what James says, that's why he's an objector, is James says is false, that you can't show faith by works. So the objector says, verse 18 and 19, see if it makes sense to you. If, it, if someone, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith by the works. I'll go with the ek there instead of the, the without. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith by the works and I'll show you my faith. I'll show you my faith by my works. Show me your faith by your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Right? Isn't that a lot simpler? If we take the without and we put in the by, and it's legit. It's legit 
to put it in there because this is a very true thing. Show me from is in many, many manuscripts. But either way, it, it works. The objector is saying you cannot show faith by works. And then, notice over here he says, let's get this. Here's my objector, a little light bulb. Works cannot demonstrate faith. Right, haven't we heard this? James has heard it. That's why he knows it. He knows it's coming. He's going to challenge believers to work, and they're going to be like, you can't do that. I don't have to work. And James is going to say, you have to. You're a believer. You have to do what you're made to do. They're like, no, I don't. No, I don't. You have to love others. Oh, no. I do. I do love others. This would be what they would be. They'd be like, I do love others. And James would be like, but you just threw someone in prison and took their farm. Oh, oh, that. You know, it'd be something like, oh, right, right, right. But, you know, that was justified, to use James's word. But they'll, be say, you know, they'll say, like, I have love up here in my heart. I believe it. You know, I, I have faith in this love that God has for me. And James is saying, but your actions, your lifestyle, your immorality. You know, is it, it becomes a great detriment to somebody, a Christian, who is trapped in an immoral lifestyle, to tell them, oh, it's fine, it's all grace. Don't worry about it. It's fine. You'll be fine. When they won't. They're on the path to destruction, which could end up in physical death for sure. And because you don't, not you, anybody, because somebody doesn't have the fortitude to say, look, you need to stop, then you're just helping them down, just you know, pushing the wheelchair off the cliff. You're helping it. But James, you know, right? You see this in the letter. We haven't gotten to chapters 3, 4, and 5. We're just going to summarize those in a, in a broad way. And that is because the letter of James is actually seeing the theme of it in the first two chapters. Chapters 3, 4, and 5 are like expansions of the first two chapters. If you know the first two chapters, you know James. And then, and then once you know them, you can read 3, 4, and 5 with... Um, you know, with ease and without any confusion or um, any conflict in yourselves about whether this is a legalistic book or something. So the objector says, look, works cannot demonstrate faith. And then he gives an illustration. This is why it's important to put 19, verse 19, in the mouth of the objector. The objector says, you believe that God is one. This is a, an illustration. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe in shudder. This is not, actually, you know what? I'm not even going there. I'm so sick and tired of people using verse 19 to teach on different kinds of faith. It's driving me crazy. So I, I kind of almost went there. I'm not going there. The illustration. Here it is. Men and demons both believe the same truth. Yeah? Men believe that God is one. All Jews did. Demons believe that God is one. Yeah, of course they do. 
again, James is making up an objector here, but the demons know that they have revolted against the one true God. And the objector says, but you see, the product of that is not the same. They both believe the same thing. For men, it's good. For demons, it's fearful judgment. And that's the example. The example given is to prove, so to speak, that uh, you know if you have faith, it's not manifested by works. So you have the exact same situation in two different people and you get two different outcomes, then you cannot say a situation will always produce a certain outcome. So if, if person A and person B are exactly the same, but there's two different outcomes, then you can't say that that situation will always produce the same outcome. That's the point. But James is, you know, he made this up, and then he's going to shoot it down. It's something that should be said for the you do well, though. Again, if you read it, you believe that God is one, you do well. This is not some kind of English sarcasm. First off, James doesn't write in English. He doesn't know this is often interpreted in terms of English sarcasm, uh, our colloquial, oh, you do well. You know, people interpret it that way, as if James is writing it that way, which he's not. He actually means it. The man who believes that God is one does well. The demon who believes that God is one shakes in his little demon boots. And so there's a different, there's a different outcome. James, if you skip back to verse 8, look at James 2.8. If, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. Right? So the same, the same phrase is used by James to indicate this is something good. You believe God is one, you do well. So the purpose of this is simply a made-up argument given by James who anticipates that many objectors will read his letter. And they will say that faith cannot be seen in works. And they'll think up illustrations that prove their point, or at least they say proves their point. And James is saying to them, you must change. And I know you're going to resist it. Don't make up dumb excuses. Right, that could have been a good title for today's lesson. Don't make up dumb excuses. If God tells you you've got to change, change. The, I, God, not me, the Scripture. If the Scripture says you've got to change, you've got to change. That is the point. So back to the theme. Right? Maybe not. Okay, never mind. James just stated that we will all be judged by Christ... That is, in chapter 2, we're all going to be judged by Christ. And that is another thing. If, you know, if peer pressure says you don't have to change, or peer pressure says that, uh, you know, you should change in a certain way that God doesn't want you to, and, you know, you're going on the opinion of people and a circumstance, you know, the the people in the circumstances are not going to be the ones that judge you. 
In 2 Corinthians 5.10, all of us are going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ, whether we've done good or bad, and we're going to be recompensed accordingly. That's, what it, that's all the detail we get, but we know that we're going to be judged whether good or bad. The people here on earth are not going to be judging you. They do it now, but they're not going to, they can't, they are not your ultimate judges. And so we each have to have the courage to follow God despite the pressure, because Satan is going to bring the pressure from many, many places. And James at the front, James 1 2, it is various trials. The various trials come from different people in different circumstances at different times, sometimes from where you expect them to come from, sometimes not. And we have got to have the courage to say, look, this is what James is saying. I have been made to live this spiritual life, and I'm going to live it. So what we need to take from this is the right answer to the question of whether there is any connection between faith and works. Is faith purely invisible, or is it manifested? And if it can be manifested... Can anyone see it? How could we be sure? How could I know that that fruit that I produce, at least I think it's fruit, is actually from God? And uh, James gives Abraham and Rahab to prove his point. <clears throat> and that wouldn't have been a new argument at the time. The church understood the religion of the Pharisees. That they said one thing and did another. This was They were well aware of this. But, you know, what comes with Christianity is a brand new set of doctrines, right, concerning the person and work of Christ. And you can imagine some early Christians who were saying, well, look, we're not under the law anymore, right? We're not under the law anymore. And now we have Christ and we have forgiveness and we have eternal life. Why should I obey commands that are in the Old Testament? Like commands like, don't commit adultery. James has them here. Don't murder. But also from what we saw on Sunday, the Sabbath, the Sabbath rest was a time of true love to your neighbor. When James says, love your neighbor and you do well, it's actually another manifestation, manifestation of the Sabbath that God gave his people rest. And while they rested, they gave to each other. They shared with one another. They loved one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a manifestation of the Christian life. You're going to have heads full of doctrine and not do it. Not do it at all. And secretly in our hearts, we judge and we put down and we evaluate, you know, who's rich, who's poor, who's clean, who's dirty, who's got a home, who's homeless. We put them all in our little categories and we don't love. And that must not be. That is James first book of the new I love this first written book of the New Testament and it's 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 wonderful it's a wonderful way in which God says look before you get into all your theology and you will make sure you know first and foremost that I demand to be obeyed so James is continuing just to wrap up if our faith cannot be manifested in life by divinely good deeds, it cannot be all that valuable. If the objector's right, that our faith isn't really manifested, then it's really not all that valuable, is it? If our faith is just a head thing, 
you can say it's a heart thing, whatever, whatever, an inside thing, and it doesn't manifest itself in words and deeds, how valuable is it? If faith can't change another person's life, you know, I, I think of, you know, how was I saved and over the years, how have I been encouraged to go on and to do and to not quit and so on? It's come from people. I haven't heard the word of God from heaven. It's come from people. You know, who has taught me? Who has encouraged me? Same with you. There have been people. They've used deeds and words. They've used their bodies. They've used their, their mouths to speak. They've given to you. They've comforted you. They've forgiven you. And there's several of those people. If it weren't for their works, if they were all just like, yeah, just go look it up in the Bible and read it for yourself. Or as James says, there's a hungry person there. Oh, go and be filled. I'll pray for you then Christianity can't be all that valuable if it doesn't produce anything. But, in fact, it has, and I would say in the lives of the minority, it seems to be throughout all of history in the church, it's been the minority that have grabbed hold of these things to, what I mean by that is to live out their faith. They have changed the world. Right? The, the whole world is immersed in Christianity. They don't even know it. The whole world demands, even in the East, now that the Internet is kind of breaking open the East to Western ideas. They're not really, they're really Judeo-Christian ideas. The, the idea of that, the fact that people have rights, the idea that people uh, should have freedom, the idea that God has created all men equal, men and women equal, those are all Christian ideas. They came with the New Testament. Neither male nor female, that's New Testament. Right? Jew or Gentile, New Testament. All have rights before God, created in His image. Yeah. And people don't even know. But there has been some. And the, the hope is here with James, is that with this book that you and I will be one of those. One of those who despite, don't be looking around at others saying, well, what are they doing? That's a, that was Peter's mistake, wasn't it? What about John? Do what you've been called to do in your ministry and do it to the fullest. You can only do it now during this age. You only have a few years left. And I don't mean you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean us. Same with me. I'm turning 57 in a couple weeks, and I am flabbergasted by how much. It's not so much I care about my age. It's just how much time do I have to do what God has called me to do. And I, he always gives enough time. But I think how much time have I wasted? And I'm pretty determined not to waste another day. That doesn't mean I won't. But... Um, you know, so here, again, if our Christian faith does not manifest itself in works that are life-changing, then it is not valuable at all. They might as well throw it into the trash heap with the rest, or the bin, I guess, with the rest of the religions that promise all kinds of stuff and don't really do anything uh, but, you know, create wars and make people guilty. Uh, this is something else.
So um, to finish, now Abraham, actually, now notice the contrast. I'm just going to focus on Abraham. This will be done with this passage here. Again, again, it's an overview of James. It's not in a heck of a lot of detail. Uh, my, my hope and prayer is that you get this book as a main theme and a couple of sub-themes of the book, and that's, that's what we're after. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 4.2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And I underlined, he has something to boast about. And the reason I did that is because, again, we might read into Paul, I think we initially, um, spontane- I, I guess automatically, read into Paul's words here that if Abraham's justified by works, he has something to boast about. In other words, he has nothing to boast about. But it could be that Paul means, well, he kind of does have something to boast about because he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. That's a pretty big deal. But not before God. And I'm just throwing it, it could mean that Abraham, his faith could have been something that was boasted about amongst us, but not before God. Abraham is justified by faith, but in James, Abraham is justified by works. Can they be the same justification? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The one justification that is spoken of, as you see here, is a justification of life, which the believer, sorry, it's a justification, where did I write that? Uh, is a justification of eternal life. In other words, a justification that through faith in Christ and through his sacrifice on the cross, I have fulfilled the law, God has imputed me with righteousness, and therefore before God for all of eternity I am justified, all my sins are forgiven, and I am have eternal life. And that is my salvation through faith in Christ as my Savior. But what James is talking about here is another kind of justification, which is a justification of my life. My life as I walk this walk in life. How many believers are out there who know their doctrine, but in their hearts, they're not really living it? That's what James is after. That's what I'm after. And I'm after it for anyone listening to my voice. In our marriages, in our families, on our job, to our to strangers, to people in the local assembly, do we consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, or do we put each other down? Do we actually use words of encouragement, or do we gossip and slander and put down? Do we actually love unconditionally our spouses and our children and our neighbors? Or do we secretly in our minds harbor some kind of bitterness and really selfishness? No one would see it. But James would say, look, this is eventually going to be manifested in some way. And God is trying to free us. You know, we can fool ourselves for years that we're actually doing what we should be doing and we're not. That's what James is after. Uh, Abraham is definitely not justified by works, but by faith. But when he sacrifices Isaac, he becomes, as God calls him, a friend of God. 
Uh, he's willing to sacrifice Isaac, and then what happens? Well, let's read it. Last line, verse 22. You see, this is example, that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was matured, perfected. And that we must re- remember, right? My, my, I think of my initial reaction to trial and pressure. My initial, if I let my flesh react, not good. It's usually anger, some kind of angst, some kind of grumpiness or bitterness or something. And, and that is, fortunately, God is patient. He leaves, he leaves the test there after you've failed it maybe initially. He'll leave it open for you so you can kind of screw your spiritual head back on straight and get at it again. But we have, if we remember, as soon as the you feel that pressure, whether it's from wherever, and you say to yourself, look, this is my opportunity. I'm not going to get a infinite number of these, am I? There's a finite number because I only live a finite number of days. There's a finite number of trials. These various trials, they're finite in number, and each one of them is designed to mature my faith. And if my faith matures, I'll see more of God, I'll see more of life, I'll live more of life, eternal life. And so if we can remember that when the pressure comes, instead of reacting negatively, we can just that that bit of faith in the fact that this is going to mature me, that is going to make all the difference. And I'm going to say, wait a minute, this is good. It's not bad, it's good. And your flesh is going to say, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Your flesh is going to fight it. And you've got to be able to say, you know, the truth will set you free. And that's here what we have in the book of James. Faith without works is dead? Absolutely. Are we justified by works? Absolutely. But our lives of faith are justified. It's not the justification that Paul is talking about. In Romans. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you that you and you alone are the origin of truth. We thank you that you and you alone are the one who has given us all things. You are the one of blessing and life and eternal life. We know, Father, that all of us need some changes. We ask that you remind us through your spirit when the time comes that we remember that trials are for our maturity and that they are for our good and to trust you and to live out our faith no matter what and to have that courage and that will glorify you to the maximum. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.